Pastor. Um, let's go before the Lord and we'll go into some review and start there in chapter 2. Father, as we do uh, come before you tonight, Lord, we ask that you would just do that great work that you're so faithful to do, Lord, to speak to us through your word. And uh, so we ask that you move by your Holy Spirit to uh, draw us close and reveal yourself uh, to us, Lord. And again, just continue to um, uh, draw us uh, deeper and deeper into all that you want to do in and through our lives, Lord. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. So we've been left off with uh, Esther. We kind of did an introduction last week. And, uh, oh, no slides up there, thanks. Um, Esther last week, and we kind of got um, to the first chapter there, and this doesn't want to open up for me. And um, so we got to the first chapter and did a little introduction. So if you missed that, um, uh, I encourage you to go back and review that. So I know there was a problem with the video on YouTube, so I'll try to get that sorted out tonight. Um, so I just happened to notice that today um, earlier so we'll get it sorted out but anyway we won't go through all the introduction but I do want to put up a little bit you know again where, where the setting is and we are in the Persian kingdom and Susa is the capital um, of the Persian the Medo-Persian Medo Empire um, just gives us some sense of where we are. The next slide kind of gives us a bigger picture there. So you can see Italy to the top left up there, the boot. Uh, Sicily on the island there, of course, Africa right across from that. Uh, Egypt and so forth, all those North African countries. And then we move into Greece uh, uh, next to Italy. And then, of course, you can kind of pick out where Israel is and Jerusalem. But just to give you some sense, Jerusalem is almost directly east of uh, Susa, the capitals. You know, you would never go through the, South, the Arabian Desert, um, but, you know, as far as longitude, um, it was, you know, pretty close to that line there. But just to give you some sense of how big the Persian um, Empire was, it was certainly huge. And we got an introduction to Xerxes, the uh, Persian king, who had an incident with his wife, uh, the queen, and she was removed from her position. We also talked about, you know, he was having a six-month-long party, um, and then a couple, um, another smaller one, and his wife had one for the women. And we know from history that he was getting everything together because they wanted to you know, expand their empire to the west, into Europe, and they were going to go against Greece. And they have already captured a few islands at this point, and, and uh, you know, his dad, Darius, had, have already, have captured some things. And so they're really going to the Battle of Marathon, really, um, after chapter one, uh, if you're familiar with, with history at all. But... Again, the queen was moved uh, for our purposes. We're not so much interested in the world history or the Persian um, history or any of those things. You know, the Lord puts those in to give us settings and so forth. But, you know, we're definitely focused on you know, what, what the Lord was doing um, through the Persian king and by moving, uh, removing his wife, thereby uh, allowing for another wife to come in, another queen, as we'll see. And as I said last time, you know, the Lord's name, God, Father, Lord, anything is not mentioned in this book at all anywhere. Um, uh, there's a number of things that are really omitted from this book that, you know, we typically see in every other book of the Bible. But um, as we mentioned last time, but again, here we don't see the Lord, but we see his work and his hand moving through history and through people to to work his will and his way. And again, it's just a reminder for us, as we'll probably talk about every time we meet to go through this book, uh, it just, it's the same way with our lives. The Lord likes to work so much of the time just in what most people would call natural circumstances, like, oh, that happened to take place, or this happened, or, you know, this, you know, uh, thing change or this thing came out or you know the Lord's working through all those things in our lives to conform us and, and bring us into his perfect will and to work things uh, 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 you know works will as Philippians says he will and works in our hearts to, to accomplish his will and 
That's what he's doing here, and we have a great picture of that in the book of Esther. So, um, verse 1, uh, and again, you know, as far as the background and so forth, I encourage you to catch up last week if you want to go over those things. But verse 1 says, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Now, after what things again, the things that took place in chapter 1, and, uh, you know, she called her to come. She wouldn't come. It was a very big insult to him uh, in front of, uh, you know, his, his staff, uh, leaders, all sorts of people. She just refused to come. And, uh, again, you know, they said basically she just can't be queen or there's going to be this anarchy through the kingdom. And so... But we did just say after these things, and it says his, and Asherius, again, is just a title. It's like uh, Pharaoh is a title for a king, or um, Caesar is a title for, you know, the adopted title for the Roman emperor, Caesar, whatever their name is. Same kind of thing here. We know his name is Xerxes. Um, and we know that he gathered all those people together. Verse 16 kind of tells us, uh, we can get the dates, that there was about a four-year gap between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And we know from history uh, what happened during that time. He had rallied the troops, as we talked about in chapter 1. He went to Greece to conquer more land. Uh, He was soundly beaten and uh, comes back, and it's really the beginning of the end of the Persian Empire. It starts on its decline from there. The Greece will, and Alexander the Great will start rising up, um, just as uh, Daniel had certainly predicted uh, in the book of Daniel. But, you know, he comes back to his palace dejected, and added to his misery is the absence of the queen. And um, so one of the problems was we know from you know, uh, Daniel and, and other places that when the Medes and the Persian kings made a decree, it couldn't be altered even by the king himself. Um, that was just, uh, you know, uh, kind of a funny thing. You know, you think you'd have absolute power, but they had some policy. When you made a decree, just don't flippantly change your mind and go back the other way. So even by himself, so Vashti couldn't be his queen again. And he's, you know, licking his wounds, let's be obvious here. Uh, You know, uh, she was, he was defeated by the Persian army. Now he's thinking when he gets home, you know, things are not right here. And, um, you know, it was a hard defeat, certainly for Xerxes, but it was all working and God overruling all of his, you know, plans to expand the empire and make it greater and greater. God's overruling that and going to raise up the Greek empire as he had foretold. And so um, the power was passing on from Persia to Greek. Uh, and again, just as the Lord showed Daniel, and he's back there now after this defeat, and he, now he's down and he doesn't have a queen. And so the people see that, his servants see that. So verse 2 pretty much says that. Then the king's service, servants, I'm sorry, who attended him, uh, said, uh, attend him said, let Beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the providence of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, or it's spelled a couple different ways, Susa, uh, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the co- uh, custody of Hegai, uh, the king's eunuch, custody of the women, and let beautiful preparations be given to them. Then let the young women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the queen, king, and he did so. So as things aren't going well, and he's feeling lonely, feeling down, you know, you know his attendants are saying, hey, we got a way to cheer him up. Let's get you a new queen, right? You know, gather all the best-looking gals from everywhere. And again, you know, if we look at the map, the empire was was very large, and so basically they put this out. Let's just, you know, get all the best-looking gals from all over where you rule and bring them there to the capital and sort them out, and you can pick one. Um, The Jewish historian Josephus 
says that, um, and, and again, I don't know if this helps us, but he said that he uh, had uh, about 400 women selected. Um, so I don't know how accurate that is, but you know that's just what we hear from one one Jewish historian uh, who wrote about you know about the uh, he, he was alive about the time of Jesus and just before the birth of Jesus. So um, that's what he said. So that gives you some sense of how many women were rounded up. And um, of course, we know, and we'll see here in a little bit, um, that Esther is among that crowd. I just do want to uh, take short. A uh, little interjection, if you don't know this, you know, there's a couple of movies made about this uh, Esther. I, I'll throw a couple of them up there. Um, one is, you know, Esther, and that's from 1999. Um, and a, a good movie to watch. Uh, you know, if you want to watch something, uh, you know, and not too often do we get a, a movie made of a book of a Bible we're studying through, and and for it to be, you know, pretty good, uh, you know, they take liberty in some areas when it, the Bible's silent, but it maybe gives you some sense of a feel of what goes on. So, you know, interesting. There's another one. I haven't watched this one in a while, but it was called One Night with the King. And um, this is back in uh, a little bit newer, 2006. And so some pretty famous actors and actresses in that. So, you know, if you want to kind of check that out. Um, gives you a little sense of what the story is like overall and maybe kind of gives you some pictures in your mind. So I just kind of throw that in there um, as something maybe you'd be interested to watch when we're going through the book here. So um, anyway, so, you know, this, they march in the ladies and he's going to pick one out to be his new queen. And again, it seems like just natural circumstances, right? The queen wasn't doing good. She, you know, had this kind of open rebellion, which wasn't setting a good example. And so, you know, they, he dismisses her. And, I, and I, you know, I'm putting it nicely. I don't know, you know, typically it wasn't unheard of for them just to literally, you know, get rid of them, literally. Um, but either way, she's deposed from, the, from being queen. And another one is coming in to be his queen, you know, again, right there next to the most powerful man, arguably, in the world at that time. But the Lord is working through what we would say natural circumstances. So she had an attitude, so that happened, and then he lost, so now he really wants to replace her with somebody. And, and again, the Lord's hand is moving all this and putting everything together, just like he does in our lives today. And just always keep that in mind. So they said, yeah, let's bring some ladies in. Let's round them all up. The king says, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so verse 5 tells us, In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. This pronounce actually a little different, but everybody calls him Mordecai, so let's just stick with that. The son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jehoiachaniah, uh, I'm sorry, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up, now this is Esther's real name or Jewish name, if you would, Hadass, Hadassah, that is Esther his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So now we see, again, we get introduced in the search and the hunt for a new bride and trying to find the, the most beautiful gals in, in his realm. Esther, again, whose Jewish name was Hadashah, uh, which means myrtle. Uh, the Persian name she has, which is Esther, means star. And as we can see here, she was raised by her cousin Mordecai since the death of her mother and father. Um, so he was, uh, and again, you know, when you have large families, it's like that. And, and on my mom's side, you know, cousins and in our family too, there's you know, nieces and nephews that, and, and cousins that are very close in age and probably in a lot of your families as well. So she's really technically her, her cousin, uh, but, you know, probably certainly 
probably her father's age, maybe even older or somewhere around there. So um, she, he took her in right away. And of course, Mordecai, I'll put a, um, uh, you know, uh, his definition of his name, Mordecai, and that's how you really pronounce it up there. You can see it phonically. Little man, bitter bruising or bitterly reduced, bitterness of oppression. And, you know, the Bible dictionary says the picture of the humanity of Jesus while acting as our kinsman redeemer. And so, again, um, metaphorically, we can kind of see, you know, what he represents and what Esther represents. I, I try not to go into too much of the metaphors unless the Bible makes it pretty clear that's what it is. But, you know, I point those things out so that you can kind of see those pictures through this. It, it does tell us that, you know, they're from the royal, line, royal family line of Saul, it appears, right? That Esther's parents um, and, and obviously Mordecai, her, her cousin, um, were from that lineage of Benjamin. And we don't know, but her parents probably were most likely killed in the siege for, uh, when Babylon, you know, sieged uh, Jerusalem a few times. And... They were, you know, probably killed, and obviously Mordecai and Esther were taken away in captivity there. Now, remember, this takes place in between chapters six and seven of the book of Ezra, so it, it, it's, you know, right in there. Um, you know, Ezra's manning up everybody to to head back on his Zerubbabel and Joshua had been back for a number of decades at this point. Um, and so they're still in, in Persia here. They had not gone back. Um, but I think, you know, just looking at these two, I imagine you can kind of feel sorry for both of them, right? I mean, just think about it. Her family um, was killed at, at some point, um, and she was alone. And it could have happened where, you know, they were... It doesn't tell us when they were killed. Actually, they weren't probably killed in the siege. As I just said, I just thought about the timing of that, but, you know, they were put to death, and the only ones left from their family probably were these two, and I imagine that, you know, everybody lost somebody. Probably Mordecai lost his family, maybe his children, and uh, it seemingly like it's just those two, and you can kind of feel a little bit uh, sorry for them and the difficult circumstances that, that they had faced from their captivity and then living pretty much as slaves probably in the Persian Empire. Um, so, you know, your heart kind of goes out to them. The other thing is that we see the Bible tells us that she was lovely and beautiful. So they're making a point that she was just an exceptionally beautiful uh, woman. Um, again, uh, I, I think we just can't... Uh, emphasize that enough. You know, she was just an exceptional beauty, and the Bible kind of puts that out here. She, you know, if you saw her, she was probably very stunning. Um, but again, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what are they doing there? You know, the Lord had clearly spoken through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others. You know, they were to come back to the land uh, after uh, 70 years. You know, Daniel had, you know, talked about that, the 70 years were up, you know, he was alive when that was going on, um, and again, maybe, you know, he had some connection at some point, you know, they had some connection with him being over there at some point, or maybe their forefathers did a little bit, so he's probably well known in the empire, uh, even though he's, uh, he is, uh, you know, pretty much long dead by then. But, you know, we know from the numbers about 50,000 went back um, in that first bunch, and Ezra is kind of, you know, at some point here gearing up to, to head, head out as well. And, you know, I don't know how many, you know, have to kind of estimate, but it seemed like, you know, a million or so, maybe more, had stayed. And I think that's important that we understand this. Um, you know, the Lord had told them to go back to the promised land. He had made it clear that, yes, they were supposed to go out to learn some important lessons about idolatry. There was a price to pay for uh, what they had done, but the plan was for always to, to bring them back. But it seems like most people had this kind of heart, um, you know, they stayed because they thought, well, this is what's, you know, best. 
and I'm not going to risk losing what I have here for something unknown. And at this point, you know, going back to Israel and Jerusalem in particular was like going back to not much as we had talked about. It, it certainly wasn't easy and it wasn't developed, but you know, rather than stepping out in faith, there were so many people that just thought, you know, well, this is the best it's going to get, and I'm not going to take a chance by risking what I have for something that's unknown. And, you know, what a lie that is. We just need to remember that Satan wants to lull us into believing this back in that day in our lives today. You know, don't risk anything. Hold on to what you have. Who knows what will happen? Um, you know, we can kind of fall into that and, and hold on to things so tightly. And I know the Lord showed me, you know, many, many years ago, the, you know, the tighter I hold on to something, the less uh, grip I have. It's just the reality of it. And, um, you know, we can be that way on a number of issues in our life and a number of things. And, you know, I, I'm not going to risk whatever it might be, you know, whether it's relationals or relations or relationships or things or money or careers or any number of things, you know, we can really lock onto something and we're not willing to risk losing that. And, uh, um, you know, so rather than trust the Lord and step out in faith and, uh, uh, you know, acknowledge the fact that when we came to know him, we gave him our lives. Um, and, you know, that was the deal. And sometimes we just want to hold back and hold on to what we think is what's best and what we think is, you know, going to work out for us rather than trusting him. And that's really one of the things that Satan does in our lives. Um, but we need to remember, first of all, it's not a risk. It's our Heavenly Father. Though we gave him uh, our lives, when we came to faith, you know, we came to a loving Father who is absolutely the best for us in mind, always has, always will. And, you know, the greater thing to remember is He's in control of everything. He's working in these circumstances at the highest level, we'd say, of, uh, of power in that day. And it doesn't matter if it's up there or, or down here. He's working. And He loves us. And at the end, what can we really hold on to? Um, we, we need to understand that. The Lord's not going to uh, force us into anything. He, he doesn't force us. The Father doesn't do that. But, you know, what He has for us is always so much better, better than a lot of times we're willing to settle for. And I just think we need to always kind of look at that and reevaluate. There was really nothing godly in Persia, you know, in our case here. Really, there was nothing godly in Persia. You couldn't do anything uh, uh, as far as obeying the law and keeping the law. You couldn't offer any of the sacrifices. You couldn't do any of the feasts. I mean, you just pretty much everything the Lord had set up for them uh, in, in, in the nation to worship and come to him was just impossible to do. Now, certainly in Daniel's case um, and, and his friends, when we talk about that, they were kind of faced with the same thing, but yet it wasn't um, something that they could control. They were forced to be there and for what little they could do, you know, certainly we know Daniel was praying and Daniel um, wanted not to, uh, wanted to keep as much as he could of the, what we call the kosher laws or the, the, the food laws, at least hold on to a couple little things there. And, uh, but that's not the case here. They, they had the freedom to go back. And as a matter of fact, Darius encouraged them to go back, um, which was um, uh, Xerxes' father. And, you know, whatever we hold on to, you know, at, to the point of, you know, not wanting to hear uh, the, the voice of the Lord is, is, is not worth settling for. It's just never going to be as, as good. And again, being in Persia would have tremendous pulls to compromise, wouldn't it? I mean, you're in a place where everything and anything goes. Um, and so it, that living and being involved in that kind of place is a tremendous pull to compromise. And, uh, you know, I just think it's important to, to point that out. God's faithful and we're going to see him work through all this, but... Again, I just think it's, you know, we're not risking anything when we walk in faith. 
And we might think we might lose something or not have this or this is going to fall away and I have to hold on to it and I put so much effort and time into this and energy and and if it's not the Lord's will, it's just so much better just to move away no matter how much time and energy and effort you have put into this thing or work or relationship or whatever. If the Lord doesn't have it, it's just better to cut loose and follow Him. You'll never regret that decision. And... Um, Again, it's just compromise is just and worrying about losing something is such a lie from the devil. But anyway, back back to our story here. So um, we get a little background from them. And verse eight tells us, so it was when the king's command and decree were heard and when many young women were gathered to Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of the eunuch here, uh, Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Now, here it seems like, you know, we read that Esther didn't really have a choice. She was taken into, you know, if that picture helps, into his harem along with these other 400 or so, whatever that number is, um, just you know, was they were taken in there. Um, now, I don't know, you know, you, you if you watch those movies, uh, particularly uh, the one that's called titled Esther, you know, they show them kind of uh, the king's men reading the decree, and then, you know, whenever the captain of the guard, oh, there's a pretty, get her, you know, and they drag her, and she's kicking and screaming and yelling, and her parents are crying and, and all that stuff. Um, you know, that's kind of what they depict in the movies was, was that the case all over? I, I don't personally think so. Um, I think probably in some cases it certainly was. I think in this case it was. But, you know, for a lot of them, you know, they had many children, you know, she would have a place. She'd always be well taken care of. She'd probably have access to the best of the best. And it would, it would elevate the name of the family and maybe create more opportunities. So, I don't think every time a woman left, it was just, you know, a horrific scene. Uh, I think a lot of them would feel some sort of honor uh, to be in that position. Even their families would feel that way. Well, you know, we have her arranged to marry, you know, this person, which was typical in that culture. And But, you know, the king, compared to this guy, are you kidding me? Go, you know, kind of a thing. So uh, I imagine that was probably the case in, in a lot of it, but... Here we show that Esther was taken. And again, you know, you have to ask yourself, is it the result of being in the wrong place? Um, you know, if they were heading back to Israel, would this have taken place? Well, it was under the domain of the Persian. But um, anyway, we could speculate on that all day. But the bottom line is the Lord is certainly going to work it for good. But she's, she's taken into... Um, this group of gals um, for um, the king's choice to be the new queen. So they're in there, and if that picture gives you some help there, verse 9 says, Now the young women pleased him, uh, the young woman pleased him, that is Esther, by the way, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave her beauty preparation, gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants into the best place in the house of the women. Now, when we read that, you know, Esther's there, and at you know, some period of time, and, and probably not too long, you know, all of a sudden she finds favor with this guy, this eunuch that was in charge of the women or the harem, we'd say, today. Now, I don't know about you, when I read that, you know, my mind instantly jumps to Joseph, right? You think, you know, Joseph, here he was sold, and, you know, and then Potiphar's, you know, bought him, and then he was really shown favor, right? And then when he was thrown in jail by Potiphar, then he was really shown favor by uh, the jailer. Or, you know, can we, just as we talked about Daniel, the same thing. Him and his three friends, you know, are taken in there and they're supposed to be trained by the king uh, for the king's service, probably to be as a translator and, you know, to 
and help the kingdom with the customs that people they now ruled and language and so forth. And uh, they're shown favor, as we talked about. I really, you know, like that. Just again, the hand of the Lord working in there, granting um, them favor. Uh, reminds us of a, a verse that most of us uh, kind of look past, uh, Proverbs 3, uh, you know, 5, 6, and 7, most of us know, but if you just back up a little bit, Proverbs 3 and 4, it says, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. And I like that because, again, uh, we see here... Um, there was something working in Esther's life, uh, you know, uh, uh, being, we'll see here in a little bit, her humility and her faithfulness. Um, and as we continue to do that, we will win good favor with uh, man and God. And I think that's just so appropriate for us today. You know, whether we're at work or at school or within your family or in any, you know, circumstance, you know, with friends and, and so forth, you know, just having a good name and just being, you know, love and faithfulness never leave you. And as the proverb goes on, you know, just have them, you know, around you. They're just part of your life. They're in, in your heart. Um, you know, we'll, we'll do so much as a great witness to our Heavenly Father's love and work in our life. And, um, you know, the Lord will use that for us to move and do and, and move into places that he has for us. And so the Lord is faithful to move, you know, Esther into a place where those who would show favor and give them favor and give them opportunity again uh, to be used. Just, again, it parallels the story of Joseph and Daniel and his three friends. I mean, it just, you can see that working in those uh, those three stories just align so much here, Esther and as well. And so we see that happening here. And again, the work of the Father in, in the circumstances. He's moving these things, these pieces like on a, a chessboard and moving the pieces around, m moving and working to move Esther and as we'll see Mordecai into the place that he wants them to be in, again, for the good of his people. Even though, as we said last week, you know, he, God's faithful, even though, you know, his people aren't. He's still working. He's still going to keep his promises. And though, you know, many of these people are in Persia, and again, not, not all of them could go back to the promised land. I'm sure there was a number of issues, maybe physically, where they couldn't do that, make the trek and be there and do all that. But, you know, even for the most part that could, you know, God's still working for their good and working and you know, to bring them to him and in conformance with his will. He's still working, even faithful, even though they're faithless here. And we can see these pieces coming together as we go through the book. And verse 10 tells us Esther had not received her people, I'm sorry, had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Verse 11 says, And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. So we see that, you know, uh, the Jews must have been looked down upon, uh, maybe, you know, in the society to say the least. So, you know, Mordecai says you need to go underground. Um, you know, don't let anybody know that you're a Jew. And again, we don't know all the circumstances, but probably it was probably looked down upon in society and she wouldn't even be able to probably get in to see the king. You know, he thought if it, if it was revealed that she was a Jew. Um, normally, let's just make this really clear. There is really never a good reason for hiding the fact that we are Christians today. Now, God's going to use this and work through this and do that, but I think we, we need to make it clear there's just uh, 
few exceptions to the fact that, you know, uh, we just can't be underground Christians. We really can't and, and conceal who we are in the Lord. It's just not God's will. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us very clearly in Matthew chapter 10, um, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whosoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Uh, Jesus lays it very clearly on the line here that it's important that we acknowledge and clearly state who we are. Uh, you know, he'll say, let your light shine before men. Um, there's just so many places where we're to acknowledge and not hide the fact that we are believers, that we're Christians. And so, um, you, you know, I, I, I learned in, in, in my life, um, um, and maybe you found this true in your own life, you know, wherever I went, you know, whether it was school or at work, I would, one of the first things I would do is make sure that everybody that I was in class with, particularly the teacher, or um, at work, uh, you know, sometimes you don't always have that chance in, in, in school, but, you know, when you do, but certainly at work, whatever department I would move into, you know, one of the first things I would let everybody know in, in the way I could without seeing you know, weird or over, uh, you know, overbearing in the case, but let them know I'm a Christian. I, I want them to know that, you know, I was serious about my relationship with the Lord, that I take it seriously, that, you know, I'm faithful reading the Bible and praying and going to church. You know, I wanted that to be known right away because for a couple of reasons, um, you know, that it would that would, you know, kind of build a foundation for my relationship. It would kind of build this understanding that, you know, there's things that they will do and say and be a part of that as a believer that I wouldn't kind of put them on notice that, I, you know, I'm not going to, there's certain things I'm just not going to do or go along with or be a part of. And, and, and the other thing is it just helped keep me in check. You, you know, when people knew you're a Christian and a believer, um, it's a lot harder to compromise now, you know, because you have this testimony. Man, if I do that, uh, you know, then hey, I, you know, it's just it's not good for the testimony that I have for the Lord, and so it kind of keeps you the other thing uh, on the straight and narrow because you don't want to lose your testimony. And when you're undercover, well, you can kind of get away with those things, and then you know, uh, you know, you feel like, well, I don't have to ruin my testimony because nobody knows. And so I think it's important that we, you know, always um, are forthright about our relationship, that we're Christians. Now, again, there were some reasons here, but I think that's the exception rather than the rule. And uh, the other thing we see here is we see how much love Mordecai has for Esther, right? I mean, he's going there every day, it says, right, in verse 11. He's pacing up and down, trying to catch a glimpse of something. Now, they wouldn't let guys near you know, the place where the king's girl, you know, concubines and women were, you know, they just, <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. Uh, the king didn't want to have uh, one of his ladies getting pregnant and not be his. And, and so, you know, there was just that strict, you know, and eunuchs were there, so they couldn't mess around with the gals. But he was there every day trying to find out and hear something about how she was doing. I think that's pretty cool. We just really see the love that he had towards her. And then verse 12 said, Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months of oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. So ladies, can you imagine a year solid of spa treatment, <laughs> right? I mean, that's all, your whole job in life was to look beautiful and, you know, with your skin and your, you know, everything, right? Just spa treatments, literally. And of course, where they were, it was the best of the best that, that the, the world had to offer probably at that time. So, you know, pretty amazing but I also think, you know, uh, one of the reasons it went for a whole year is it was pretty clear as they were taking these gals off the street that 
uh, none of them were pregnant, right? You know, by that time, it would be pretty clear if they were pregnant having the baby, and there wouldn't be any, uh, at that point, knowing that they, you know, they, none of them could be pregnant and then not attribute that child, or there'd be some confusion on whose child it was. Was it the king's? Was it not the king's? And so, you know, that, was, that would eliminate that possibility, which is probably another reason why they uh, waited a whole year before they would go in to see the king. But he's waiting around quite a bit. Now, I don't think he was going without in that sense of being around women, but, um, you know, there's a year going by and they have these spa treatments here. And verse 13 says, Thus prepared, each woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. And in the, eve, uh, in the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shaashgaz, uh, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now, uh, in one sense, you know, this probably sounds not, not like a great life, right? And in one perspective, these gals, you know, uh, if they just didn't please the king or didn't wow him in some sense, literally, they would go to the second house now, not the first house, but, the, you know, they'd already seen the king and they would be put under Ashgaz, uh, um, who was an, another eunuch who kept these concubines. And, you know, they would never have a loving husband or probably never have any children. I mean, it was, um, you know, a pretty tough sentence, maybe from our perspective. They would have a secure place and they would probably have the best of the best for the rest of their life. And again, I imagine their families would be respected, but, you know, they would, you know, miss out on a lot. And, uh, you know, at least from my perspective, it would be pretty tough. But uh, again, Back in those days, some of them might be on the point of starvation or having very little, and they would not go without anything at this point. So uh, for some, it probably was a very uh, good thing. So you get the process. We're told how it all works here. This is what goes on. This is what they did. This is how they got them. This is how they got in there. And then this is what they would do when they would go into the king. And so now to our story of Esther, verse 15. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the, uh, uncle, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king. She requested nothing, but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the woman, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Again, you know, if you like to underline those kind of things, I think that's just a, a cool thing. And, you know, as a side note, you know, I like to write in my margins. I put my own notes and done that for for many many years you know i would write you know daniel and write joseph in there and then you know and where joseph has that i would write you know esther and daniel and daniel would write joseph you know so you can kind of always circle around those things kind of make your own references in in the bible rather than just relying on maybe a column of references there anyway uh Verse 16 says, So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which was the month of Tebath, uh, in the seventh year of his reign. And again, it gives us some idea, the, the time of all this. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins." And so he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Queen Vashti. And when the king had made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the province, provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. So you love here, Esther's story is told us here, she humbly it takes the wisdom offered by uh, the, the eunuch there to, to go in there and, uh, you know, allows her to assist with the prep preparation, what she should bring in when she would go see the, the king. 
And again, we see the hand of the Lord working behind the scenes here. You know, again, maybe 400 women, maybe more uh, were there. And again, um, you know, she is chosen as the new queen. And again, remember, the remarkable events wasn't an accident, right? Uh, it wasn't just because of luck or, you know, some good fortune or Esther's good looks or wonderful personality that she moves into this position as queen. God had a plan and Esther was part of that plan. And again, what a lot of people would say, just circumstances or luck or just, you know, good fortune or this or that or whatever they attribute to, and even we can do that to a certain extent in our lives, was really just the part of the plan of God working in Esther's life, uh, working her as part of his plan. And again, I think the Lord does that so much in our lives that it just becomes so commonplace that there's a lot of times we just don't even recognize it because it's so common and we think, oh, that's just the way it worked out. Oh, that just happened. And I, I, I think, you know, that getting recognized at work or having this happen, sometimes good or bad, it's not necessarily always what we classify as good. It could be a bad thing as part of God moving, you know, us to another place. And so something that we say, well, that wasn't a good thing. Yeah, but that, can, that still can be certainly the part of God's plan in our lives. And he is working, and we need to know that. So we accept those things and see those things and recognizing that it's just not the way things happened, but our Heavenly Father who's in control of those things. And so we go to him, Lord, you know, if you're moving in this way, okay, how do you want me to act or react or do or don't do, whatever it might be you know, in this case, that you're working. And I, I see that I know that I'm yours and I know you work all things together for good, as Romans 8 tells us. So I know you're going to work this for good. And it's not about me or what I do, but about, you know, your love and your plan. And Psalm, you know, 75, um, you know, tells us this. In, in this case, certainly with Esther, it says, For exaltation comes neither from the east nor the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. And as we go through the Psalms again, it's the Lord doing all that. It's not this or that. He is in control. He moves things and lives and people around to conform things to his will. And again, uh, he'll do that in our lives. As I just began saying, you know, we might get a raise um, or we might have something happen. You know, the company uh, is very successful that we might benefit from bonuses or, or a secure pay. Um, you know, the Lord might make something go out of business uh, so that he might move us into a place. You know, he works in the heart of the you know, you're, you're broke because of COVID and, you know, the Lord works in the heart of a president to give you a couple thousand dollars in your pocket so that you can get through and pay, you know, uh, the bills and have food on the table. He'll, he'll move in those ways for us. Don't put anything bit too big or too small for him to work in our lives. And he's working, in this case, through his people who had no idea what was going to happen through all this. You know, Esther had no idea how she was going to be used. Mordecai was in the same boat. All the Jews in, his, in, the, in the Persian Empire didn't have any idea, but God was moving and God was working. And of course, most of us know the rest of the story, but just put yourself in this place. Okay, that's great, but how does this work? And how's it going to work and what's going to happen? Well, we know a man named Haman's going to come up in a little bit and we'll find out that, but God was putting everything in place. And again, here's the fact that the Lord is working in and behind and around the scenes for his people always. Just remember that. Well, she's elevated to queen and then... Verse 19 says, When the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now neither Esther had revealed her family and her people, just, Morde uh, just as Mordecai had charged her. 
for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as she as when she was brought up by him. So obviously she was a little girl now when she came to live with him and raised him as a daughter and she looked at him as a father. And, uh, you know, now he's sitting in the king's gate, uh, probably a promotion he was given because of Esther being queen there. And uh, he's now sitting in a, in a place of prominence and we'll, we'll know a little bit more about him in the coming weeks here, but he's there. God has him there because of Esther's position. He's moved into this place. And then, uh, you, you know, again, they don't know he's a Jew. They don't know that she's a Jew or he's a Jew at this point. And in verse 21, in those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, and he gives their names, Bigthan and uh, Tertia, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Azuharius. And by laying on of hands, it's not praying for them. This is, you know, Clayton's is uh, three stooges. <laughs> you know, putting them down, right? Uh, they, they were so mad at him that they were conspiring to assassinate him, we would say. And um, Mordecai happens to be there at that place when these two guys are kind of cooking up their plan and he overhears their plot. Um, now, that should remind you of another assassination plot, maybe. Uh, remember Paul's niece, niece, I'm sorry, nephew, <laughs> not niece, nephew, in, in, in Acts 23, overhears the Jews wanting to put Paul to death, so they were going to ask him to be moved so that they could, you know, or brought before them so that these guys could assassinate him on the way. And Paul's nephew hears that, tells Paul. Paul tells the captain of the guard, and Paul's life is spared. Got bigger plans for Paul, so he spared his life through his nephew. Again, God has big plans for his people. So as we'll see, the king's life is going to be spared through Mordecai. Quietly working. It may not seem like a big deal at this time. As a matter of fact, it wasn't a big deal, as we'll see here in a minute, at the time. But it was all part of God's plan not to, for it to be a big deal. And, you know, for him to hear that, it's going to play a huge part of what's going to happen later on in the story. But at this point, it's going to seem insignificant. As a matter of fact, it's going to seem more like a big letdown. Here, Mordecai is going to spare uh, through his knowledge and through his actions, because he could have just let him die. Like, oh, this Persian guy, he's not good to us. We got to hide as Jews. We got to do this. I mean, he could have let it slide, right? Ah, let's get rid of this guy, you know? What, what good is he? But he didn't. And, and we'll see here, when he lets him know and the king's life is spared, he doesn't even get a thank you. He doesn't even get acknowledged. And that could be, well, man... I went through this and I risked those guys getting mad and maybe killing me and, and this and that and whatever. And what do I get out of it? A big fat nothing, right? But this is going to be, again, another critical part of the piece of the puzzle in God's plan. And I believe the Lord does the same thing in our lives today. Some event or something happens or he moves us into a place or this happens and it doesn't seem like it's significant or uh, it might even seem disappointing or it might seem like a no big deal. But, you know, we have to remember that who knows what God's going to do through, you know, this circumstance. You know, it, it just could be this huge piece that puts things together in our life, uh, you know, at some point in the future. Or, or works out for something that we don't even know this side of eternity. You know, that one thing that you shared uh, with them, you know, could just be a huge thing. It was a small thing to you. You know, Ethan, uh, uh, sorry, Ethan, I'll use you as an example. We were just down in Southern California, and, you know, he likes to, you know, say as he's leaving a store or somebody helps us in a store, he'll say, you know, God bless you. And I noticed he said that when we were leaving a surf store and we we're down in Huntington Beach um, a couple days ago. And, you know, as he said that, I'd like to look at the people and what their reaction is, you know, if I can, you know. Um, and when he did that, I, I, you know, I get a glance back and look at the gal he said that to. And, 
you know, you could see this, you know, big smile come upon her face. You know, it was a, it was a, a great thing for her to hear. At least that was my estimation of her response. Because a lot of people are like, okay, you know, or yeah, whatever. Or they don't pay attention, you know. But this was, you know, who knows? And again, who knows if one small event like that is the thing that, you know, she needed to hear that day that just changed, you know, this whole situation for her. And that was that one seemingly insignificant event that was a big deal. And, you know, our Father is operating at that level in our lives. And again, I just believe when we get into eternity, we're going to be amazed at all the work that He did, setting so many things up, and how He used us in so many places, and how it affected so many people in so many ways that we'll never know the side of eternity. And it's exciting. It makes the mundane very exciting. Well, Let's finish up here. Verse 22. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. In other words, hey, my father, my cousin, whatever she said, told me this is going to happen. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And so we see here he reports the assassination plot to, to Esther, who, you know, passes along to the king. They make an investigation. The culprits were hung. And again, Mordecai isn't even rewarded or acknowledged. And, uh, you know, just like another day. Now, it was recorded what he did in the king's presence, and all this is very important. But at the time, you know, he tells Esther, and then nothing, literally. Now, he probably sees these guys being hanged. I imagine it was a very public execution to warn others not to do that, to you know, attempt assassination. Um, but other than that, you know, not a fly's worth of information is given to him. And, and again, that happens in our lives sometimes. Sometimes we do something wonderful or we really help out in some great way or we're part of something or we give to something or we sacrifice something and we don't get any thanks. And sometimes we think, well, you know, God must have forgotten about me or how come this thing isn't recognized maybe the way it should? I thought it was a really big deal. And, you know, uh, again, um, we just need to know there's a time for all that. Now, certainly, Jesus tells us pretty clearly that we don't want our rewards now. We want them to be acknowledged in heaven where the rewards are eternal rather than to get the applause or the accolation or accolations, um, accolades of, uh, of people saying, oh, how great, good job, wow, you're such a great, you sacrificed so much, you gave so much, you did so much, you worked so much, you were a part of so much. You know, Jesus would say, well, you have your reward. You got it right there. Or we can just be quiet about it and, and do it as unto the Lord and then allow him to acknowledge it and get eternal rewards. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough sometimes. Sometimes you do want a pat on the back or a thank you. But at the end of the day, um, you know, our heart should be, Lord, I'm doing it to you and you know it, whether anybody else knows it or acknowledges it. Um. And again, you know, the Lord's working this all out for good. Um, he couldn't have foreseen God's perfect timing through all this and all that he was setting up. He was just faithful to do that. And God's faithful to do the work that he intends to do. And he uses people like us. And isn't that wonderful? <laughs> well, let's close there and we'll pick it up in chapter 3 next time. Father, we do thank you for that. And Lord, help us. Um, Help us to just be thankful and remember that you work in so many circumstances and situations. Lord, I, I think, you know, how many times um, once in a while you put on my mind that, you know, I, I was maybe late to something or it took longer to get to a place. And, um, you know, why was I stuck behind, you know, this car or, you know, this accident took place that backed up traffic and, and you know, I... I I know sometimes that you, there's trouble ahead, and if we had continued on it at 
normal speeds and normal conditions that, you know, we could have been involved in an accident or something else happened. And I just think those things happen day in and day out in our lives, simple things like that that we don't really recognize as you working in and through our lives when you really are. And when you use us and, and, and we're faithful and we have, you know, we, we just hear your Holy Spirit speak to us, Lord, we don't always see. In fact, many times we don't. But we know that you're working. And when you prompt our hearts to do things or say things or go places or be a part of this or share, you know, this, uh, you know, things or messages or finances or time or energy or whatever that you're working um, in, in ways that, you know, maybe we just don't see or never see this side of eternity, but you are working. And we just can, we can walk away with a spring in our step and a smile on our face knowing that, yep, we may not know how that's all going to work out. And maybe it was just a very simple thing. But, uh, you know, Father, we know that you'll do great things through even the most simplest things. And we thank you for that. And we thank you for, again, pointing that out to us and reminding of that here in the story of Esther. So again, draw us close, uh, help us to be faithful, and, and again, we thank you for working in our hearts and our lives. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.